May 1918. Thomas Jefferson Minifield returns from the fields of France. While recovering from a mustard gas attack, he wins the hands of his nurse, one Nancy Perkins, former Miss Tulsa. Together, the two of them sink the family flag in 400 acres of Oklahoma hard scrabble. See that window up there? Uh-huh. Arthur, my father, was born in that bedroom. Then 20 years later, young Maurice Minifield drew his first sweet breaths of life. Cool. Mm -hmm. I still have my childhood home. In fact, I'm in my childhood home right now. But I think that we are moving pretty soon. I think my parents want to move out of the town that I was born in so that they can retire in a uh, in a different place. And we have to get rid of a bunch of stuff leading up to that. Now, that's not going to happen until like a few more years later whenever uh, they move. But mm. they're preparing for it. And they're having me move uh, certain old memorabilia or like artifacts from the house. And I, I just can't bring myself to do it sometimes because there's like, a couple objects that I know they have no use like an old Dr. Seuss book or something, but I don't want to get rid of it. And I, I, I'm having a difficult conversation with my father about that because he's like, we're not we're not bringing that. Like, <laughs> that's going to the Goodwill, whether or not, you know, you're not going to be here, so we're just going to toss it in the, you know, the Goodwill bin. But yeah, I, I, I also do not want to get rid of the things that I grew up with. What about you? Yeah, like the Dr. Seuss book, things like that. It's sort of like just the memento, like the idea of the memory of it. Uh, of course, it has no worth to you, a grown-up now. You don't need a bedtime story, but I mean, you spent so many, you probably spent so many uh, fond memories, I don't know if hours, but just like you had so many experiences with that book, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of other things. Did you uh, did you find any secret little hidden away bits of nostalgia like like uh, Maurice did in this episode? Yeah, kind of. I uh, When I was a child, I was really into Beanie Babies. Mm. I, I was the kid that like really liked stuffed animals and everything. Uh, and yeah, I have like a collection of them in my closet and I, I absolutely will not give rid of those. Yeah. Just just for like old sake memories. I love those. Uh, there was a old, um, like a bin for mints, like candy mints, mm. that I kept a bunch of trinkets in or notes. And one of the notes that I had written on there, it was on a tiny scrap of paper, was saying like, uh, I am, I think it was 10. I was like, I am 10 years old. And, you know, this is going out to me from like 10 years in the future. I should be, according to the map that I built <laughs> in my mind, I should be in college. I should be a junior, I think, at this age. And then uh, I, I think the rest of the notes are like, and I don't know what I'm going to do after that. I don't even know if like I'll be alive after that <laughs> because I, I couldn't it wasn't it wasn't like in a dark direction I just couldn't I, I remember writing that note actually I just can't picture life after that yeah. whenever I was 10 years old because it seems like you're an adult once you reach that age and once you're an adult your life is stagnant according to a child so yeah. like your, your life ends <laughs> yeah I remember as a kid this is we're totally off subject now but <laughs> let's just take a little trip down memory lane I do remember as a kid like I had a vision in my head of like what I might look like when I was an adult. Cause you know, I don't look like I did when I, I mean, of course we all look like ourselves. Like if you see a 
a photo of yourself as like a baby or as even a little kid. You look the same, but you look a lot different, you know? And I just remember, you know, as a kid, I was like, I wonder what I'll look like when I get older. I guess similar to your thought of like, I don't even know what like being an adult would be. Like I can't picture it, you know? So I don't know what happens after college, like is, is what you were saying, right? Yeah, it's just the thought of being in college was intimidating and something I never thought that I would do. And then I forgot about it as I like, you know, grew older and it was like the natural progression of life was like, yeah, yeah, after, you know, after high school, you go to college and after college, you get a job. Like that's just how it's supposed to be. But as a child, you have no idea. You have new blueprint, no map. You're just, uh, you know, you're just playing outside and that, that's basically it and going to, going to fifth grade. Very true. Ch- Charles. What are we talking about? Let's get on to okay. let's get on this topic. Yeah, so this is not a podcast about our personal lives. <laughs> this is a podcast about Northern Exposure. We are the Northern Overexposure podcast. We are here to overanalyze every single episode of Northern Exposure. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host Lee. Thanks, Charles. My name's Lee. I've watched this show a couple times. Like I'm a fan of the show. Charles, I'm speaking for you. I think you're a fan of the show as well. However, this uh your experience with the show is that every episode that we talk about, it's the first time that you've watched it. You're a new audience for the show. Um, and then similarly, one of our trademarks, gimmicks of this podcast is at the end of the episode, we like to bring on a friend, uh, someone who has never seen the show before and introduce it to them and sort of get their outsider opinion. You know, the show is 30 years old now, so... Uh, get the 2021 perspective on the episode. And also just the idea is like, does this episode stand on its own? Or is it, you know, this show, we're in the fourth season now. So, you know, a lot of show Bible has been written and a lot of, uh, you know, running plot lines are, you know, are, are developing, snowballing bigger and bigger. So trying to see what someone's opinion would be like out of context. Right. Today's episode, season four, episode 20, Homesick. Lee, do you have the, uh, you got the information on who directed and wrote this? Yeah, it was directed by Nick Mark, who is, uh, I'd say, a series regular at this point. Some of his other credits are All is Vanity, The Bumpy Road to Love, Animals Are Us, Wake Up Call, Our Wedding, Nothing's Perfect, Do the Right Thing. I went ahead and just read all of his previous credits before this on Northern Exposure. So obviously that's a lot. He's directed a lot of episodes so far. And the writer of this episode is Jeff Vlaming, who I think we mentioned it's uh, interesting. He got his start in show business by writing a spec script for Northern Exposure. And that episode was, um, shoot, what's the name of that one? I think it's called The Final Frontier. I always would get it confused with uh, Three Amigos. But because yeah. yeah, just the idea of the final frontier evokes like when they're trying to go bury their friend for some reason also, in my mind. Go ahead. I think I think they were closely together when they aired. True. Yeah. They're both so in the third whenever we season. were recording. Yeah. Yeah. I think when we were recording, we did like a double block. So I think we did like back to back of those. So like those those two episodes bleed into one each other. They're close together, yeah. Um and uh, interesting to note as well, this is the last episode that Jeffrey Vlaming writes for Northern Exposure. Uh, of course, he goes on to like work with the X-Files and, and many other shows, but uh, goodbye, Jeff. Uh, and the air date of this episode is, uh, or was, March 15th, 1993. Hmm. Sayonara, Jeff. <laughs> you know, we never, we haven't recently been talking about the titles of the episodes because- 
sometimes, usually, they're pretty just like, usually the title, you can infer why it was called that. Uh, I would say for this episode, it fits particularly with the Maurice plot line, maybe sort of with the Shelley plot line. But apart from that, I, I think it's mostly, I draw it closely with Maurice, but um, but yeah, I think it's important to know because I, I, sometimes we'll forget to mention uh, they do have sometimes uh, just enigmatic titles. What's the word? Just a little less on the nose of a title. And so we usually like to try to figure out why it's titled that. Yeah, I actually thought that Homesick was applicable to all three plot lines. Well, with um, Mike, I guess, uh, is he returning to home? Is that what you're saying? Or or what do you think? Yeah, so I think with Mike, he is becoming, quote-unquote, homeless because he'll forever be traveling. He says it at the end where he says, like, wherever there is injustice, wherever there's, like, a hydrofluoric, <laughs> wherever there's, like, a hydrofluorocorbine or whatever it's called, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know the initials are HFC, and I know okay. they're devastating to the environment. They come from refrigerators. We phased them out up to, like, 1950s, 1960s, supposedly. But supposedly. wherever that is, I'll be there. I'll be there to make sure that the pollutants will be found and everything. So he's going to be bouncing from spot to spot and that's his new home it's wherever this the the calling for him is mm. that's his home and so he'll forever be homesick if he doesn't rise to the occasion for that okay i can see that yeah they're they're, they're loosely entangled into this title well charles maybe we should hop right into our analysis of the episode our thoughts uh we usually like to break this down plot line by plot line who should we start with first yeah, let's start with the first one that we're introduced to. Let's start with Shelley and Holling. Yeah. So, by the way, the yes, the 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 opening of this episode. Actually, in fact, I don't know what the first image is, but there's like this. It's like pre-lap audio. Like you know, we hear the audio before we see it, and it's like a water faucet running and Holling saying, "Ready or not, here I come." <laughs> I'm just like terrified that I'm gonna see. Holling and Shelly like in the shower or something uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, you you missed out the uh, you missed out the second line of that as well. What is what is the your, second line? Your big old honey bear is all clean you, and cuddly, Shelly. Oh my gosh. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so Holling is leaving the shower. I guess is what's happening. What is the first shot of this episode? Yeah. So the first shot is them walking into Holling's room, which the way it's framed is that we only see the door from the top. So we don't see anything above it. And we get to see a look at the hodgepodge or amount of items that are scattered there. And the scene is just basically saying like, Shelly is displeased with the environment that she's in because now that she's a married woman, she wants to change the place that she's at. She wants to actually make it a little bit more toward her style. And I thought what was really interesting is that when she's saying that and she's pointing out all the odd items that are in the place, like the deer or the halibut, the halibut appears above her head now. So like now the camera like kind of, mm. it either like widened in scope or they pulled back. They did some sort of camera trickery, but now you can see the fish. Whereas previously, like I said, you can see anything above the door. Yeah. Okay. Is it, do you think there's some sort of symbolic importance with this? Uh, just, is it uh, the fact that these, this ornament is like leering over her maybe? Yeah, I, I guess that's one way to read it. That's a, that's a good way. Yeah. I think that honestly, I, I just thought that, there's just a lot of miscellaneous items that are scattered about the yeah. room because Holling was like perpetually a bachelor. So he kind of lived like a bachelor pet. He just had like uh, knickknacks scattered everywhere. And obviously that would annoy Shelly a little bit. Yeah, she does list them off kind of like what you're saying. 
My favorite, I, I only wrote down one, but it gets its own shot. Like Shelly says, the cactus lamp. And then it cuts to like just a single like insert, like no one else is in the shot. It's just the cactus lamp. I thought that was uh, just a funny bit of editing. <laughs> and um, yeah, Shelly is a missus now. She's married according to last episode. So this is sort of like her nesting maybe in a way. Uh, she mentions that, Actually, I like I like what she says. She says, uh, some things matter to me that didn't used to. You know, she says, like, separating the whites when we wash the clothes, making the bed before we go down to work. It's like having my own house reflects my inner me. I think she says something like that. I don't know if she's just quoting, like, she has, like, a magazine um, that she's also reading, maybe about homemaking. But I think ultimately... Hauling seems a, maybe a little perturbed. And I guess as the audience, you're supposed to understand that it's like, you know, Shelly wants to change all these things that are Hollings. Um, you might expect Holling to be unnerved by this, but I actually like the ending of the scene. Holling's just like, he says, sure, have, have fun with it, I think. Like he sees that it's making her happy. So he just wants her to be happy. Yeah. I mean, you got to come across this as a mutual 50 50. So, like, some may interpret that as hauling, losing a little bit of his individuality. But you can also interpret the scene as Shelly gaining more of her worth in the 50 50 relationship right here. Yeah. And we can see it continue into the next scene, which is at the brick where Joel's trying to get an order in. But Shelly is really distracted by this magazine that she's got. She's looking in and, you know, in typical Northern Exposure fashion, the characters are all like really well educated in very obscure <laughs> trades. So in this particular case, <laughs> Shelly is just really good at like Gothic architecture or French Rococo <laughs> uh, style, all, all of that fancy things. Yeah, Joel says uh, at this point in his life, he's a minimalist. Uh, I don't know why I found this interesting. I took down, I wrote down Joel's order when he places the order. He orders a turkey club on whole wheat, cottage cheese, no chips, and a cup of coffee. Cottage cheese is a thing that I remember when I was a kid, like as being something that grownups would eat or that people, people would eat cottage cheese. I don't see cottage cheese on like menus or anything. Is that like, do people still eat that or is it just like an old person thing? Sorry, not like no offense, but I, when I was like a kid, I remember like old people, like even when I was a kid, uh, they would eat cottage. I don't even know if I've had cottage cheese. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I think like, I don't want to say anything too hasty because I think it might be a regional thing. Like I think okay, that, maybe yeah, in the okay. North, I feel they, that. they have it. Yeah, it might be more uh, common up there. Maybe, or maybe we're entirely right. Maybe it's like an old person thing and it's been phased out with, uh, I don't know, like avocado on toast or some other new uh, millennial thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like not in vogue. Um, yeah. It's just, maybe it's just, it's not marketable, you know? Uh, they don't sell a lot of cottage cheese. It's probably just a, um, a niche market, maybe. Anyway. Eh, it's probably uh, coming back. <laughs> it's coming back. It's making a comeback. Uh, <laughs> that's Is that all for this scene? Just the fact that like Shelly is distracted again by, uh, by her sort of obsession. Yeah, that's pretty much the scene right there. And then the one that carries afterwards is them still in the brick. And they got some workers. They got oh, uh, yeah. people moving in, trying to remodel the place. And Shelly, of course, is taking initiative. She knows what she wants. And she's saying like, oh, you know, I don't trust these workers at all. Uh, that You know, I'm going to go monitor them. And all this scene does to demonstrate is that hauling is a little bit apprehensive because Shelly's really going full hog with it. Like she's shutting off the water system in order for them to install plumbing. She's doing a bunch of stuff. 
Yeah, it's the real deal. It's not just like adding a few new furniture items. Like it sounds like they're going to do wallpaper. They're going to they're they've got painters, carpet. It, it's she's going exactly like you said. I, I liked. There's like an actor in this scene. I'm checking because I found it on Moose Chick. Dan the contractor, played by Michael Hazen. I liked I liked that character for some reason. I don't think we ever see him again in Northern Exposure. And in fact, when I when I searched him on IMDb. He only had one other credit. He played the club bouncer in the movie Singles from 1992. So I'm assuming he's not really an actor, just a guy who probably hung around some film sets uh, in the area. I don't know where Singles was shot, but maybe it was in Seattle or, uh, you know, Pacific Northwest. Um, or maybe uh, maybe he nailed it, man. He did <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> two perfect roles. Yeah, like, I'm not gonna top just this. like I'm, I'm done. I'm not going like, to tarnish my reputation. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, it's like this is enough. Okay, but yeah, that's kind of, that's basically that scene. Uh, pretty short scene. But the next scene when we see Shelley and Holling is after the renovations, after the remodeling. The room is now all pink. Basically, like I wouldn't even know how to describe this. I think Shelly later describes it as, you know, uh, so I don't know, all pink and, you know, uh, but I just, I, I wrote down like, it's kind of like a Barbie playhouse or something like, you know, that you would get like the play sets of like the dollhouses, I guess. And, um, in this scene, Holling is, I think he's doing an okay job with hiding it. He definitely seems a little uncomfortable. I think Shelly can tell. And so she keeps asking him like, what do you think? What do you think? What do you really think? Holling asks about his Athabascan footstool <laughs> that he apparently misses. It's been replaced with like this pink footstool. But uh, I thought that was an interesting. I, I looked up Athabascan. I think it's a, a certain tribe or a certain uh, ethnic group. Yeah, all that talk about French Rococo and she uh, goes with a dollhouse. I had written that too. I thought that it <laughs> resembled like a little girl's um, playhouse. I thought that it was really interesting because I couldn't tell if it was something that was deeply uh, subconscious within Shelly. Like she wanted to return back to her childhood, which is yeah. why she went for this direction toward it, which would go with the theme of homesick because she had left home at a relatively young age. And maybe she just wants to return back to that normalcy in her life, which is why she converts Holling's place into like, you know, such a childlike dimension. Yeah, I don't know that the episode ever like points that out that they never make it a thing as if Shelley is trying to return to some sort of age of innocence. I I definitely like my mind gravitated towards that as well because of the title of the episode and just that this does seem sort of immature maybe, but yeah, I don't think the episode never gets there, right? It's just Well, it kind of does. Okay. Sub- like with subtext it does it because okay. I'm going to skip I'm going to skip forward a little bit into it, but there is a line that Holling says to Joel where he says, uh, be careful not to knock over the glass unicorns. And that's got to be a reference to the glass menagerie by Tennessee Williams. Uh, mm. One of the biggest symbols in that book is the glass unicorn that Laura has in her room. And eventually Jim accidentally knocks over the glass unicorn and breaks away the horn. So it returns this, uh, very unique object, a animal that is very rare, according in his words, into something that's much more normal, a horse. And Mm -hmm. in the play, that's meant to symbolize that Laura wants to return back to a state of normalcy. 
Uh, but because of the way it's broken, like Jim breaks it in the unnatural way, I think the play ends with her giving that glass horse slash unicorn to Jim. It's more of a reflection on him than it is on her. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is that <laughs> perhaps Shelly is also trying to return back to a state of innocence or a preservation of youth. Yeah, that is a good point. The episode probably, I think it's baked into the like DNA of the episode. It's not necessarily on the nose, but I think we're all kind of coming to understand that, that it's, uh, that that's like part of it. I don't know if it has any bearing on sort of the conclusion. Hold up. I'm actually trying to remember how, well, I guess we'll get there. Let's get there in good time. I actually don't remember how their storyline resolves, but just to keep things rolling, um, Holling goes to see Joel. Right, he goes to Joel's office, and Holling uh, is backed up. He's constipated. He admits that he has never not pooped. One, like, okay, sorry, I wrote this really weird. Holling has pooped once a day, every day, for apparently all of his life. He says uh, for the past sixty-three years, and if I'm not mistaken, Holling is sixty-three years. Maybe he's sixty-four at this point, sixty-five, but that sounds like his age. And he just said that he has pooped every day, um, which is, that's nice. You got to be regular. You know, you got to go, you know, usually once a day, though sometimes you miss a day. But Joel is obviously pretty surprised to hear this. I think Joel asks him, like, what has changed? Like, you know, something in your diet? Uh, you getting enough roughage? Uh, apparently, Hauling ate like a whole Waldorf salad preparation. Uh, so it's not that. And it must be something in his lifestyle, something that's changed. Yeah, it's obvious that it is the environment that has changed that's causing this constipation and hauling. And that's also when Joel gives him the advice of saying, like, well, why don't you, uh, you know, why don't you communicate with her? Why don't you tell her how you really feel? Which is, I, I mean, I feel like this is something that he should have done. Like, he should have <laughs> You know, I don't think you need to go to, like, a medical. Yeah. You know. It becomes like more. Like a doctor to figure this out. Yeah, it becomes more of, like, therapy or something for hauling uh, than it. It's not really uh, because in the end, Joel doesn't even like give him a laxative. He says, I don't really feel like it's a good idea for me to prescribe medicine for this when it's something where you can just, you know, figure this out. Uh, actually, Joel says you can, you need to put your foot down, let her know who wears the pants. So I, do, you know, I definitely agree with Joel's uh, solution, but I feel like his, he's a little. He's a little bossy about it. He's like, you gotta, you gotta, you have to like tame Shelly as almost what I'm reading from, uh, from Joel. I don't know if I'd go that far, but yeah, you, you know, they need to let their feelings be known. Um, I also did find it interesting what Joel says in this scene, uh, in reference to the idea that Holling is saying like Shelly is redecorating. Well, Holling says Shelly is redecorating my, and then he corrects himself, our place, um, Joel says, well, yeah, it's not uncommon, actually, that an unfamiliar surrounding would uh, make you constipated, like being in an airplane or in a hotel room. Even a strange toilet seat could make you irregular. Um, Joel says he was constipated for a week when he got to Alaska. So, um, yeah, I feel like something I never really think of, but I guess I guess I've been... Like, I guess I've experienced this symptom of being in an unfamiliar surrounding and become constipated. 
I do not have that problem. Like not, when nature calls, yeah. I, I will just I'll just go to the bathroom. I think. Well, yeah, actually, I totally. I think I, I relate to that as well. I just. I guess I don't mean feel constipated, but I realize that like, oh, I didn't go to the bathroom when I was there. Not because I don't know. Maybe it's more of a um, something that I'm not noticing on the surface. It's an underlying thing where I don't think about mm. it, but it's like, oh, I, maybe I didn't go to the bathroom because. I was like, I'm thinking like, uh, I was on set all day. You know, that makes sense. Obviously you're at work, but things like that, where it's like, oh, I didn't go to the bathroom today when I normally, why are we t- we're talking about like bowel <laughs> movements now on I the mean, podcast? <laughs> I, I have been to a lot of strange bathrooms because I, I, I don't really have any, um, I guess shame. I don't, I don't know what the word is, <laughs> but like I, if I have to go use the you bathroom, just have to go, go nature to- calls. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'll use a gas station bathroom. I'll, you know, I'll, uh, I'm not afraid, but I don't, the worst case situation, which actually, have you ever been into a bathroom with where it's just like basically just like a hole, like there's no seat? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that is impossible for me. But yeah, that is, <laughs> it's really hard. I, Oh God, Jesus! <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry, uh, our, we'll, our episodes are already long <laughs> enough. We don't need to like talk about. Let's let's transition to the next scene, which is the final scene with Holling, and as Joel entering into his and Shelley's room, and immediately we see the shot of the glass unicorn. There's three of them in varying colors. There's even a portrait of a unicorn right there. So. Yeah, Shelly's just really big into unicorns. And we also see a really interesting shot of Holling with his hands on his knees. <laughs> yeah. And he's kind of, like, it looks like he's on the toilet. And it also looks like he is a grown man on a child's uh, desk. Yeah. So it's got both images right there, which reflect both of his states of mind. Very clever choice. I don't know whether it was, I don't know whether it was John Collins' choice or if it was the uh, who is responsible for motion in a um, in a production? Probably the director. Yeah, I would say the director. I don't know if there was the director's choice. Either way, uh, great, great decision making. Yeah, it's a totally displays Hollings like uncomfortableness, uh, and just like you said, like it kind of is that overlapping images: a child, uh, a nervous. Grown up like at a desk, uh, at a child's desk. And uh, I think it's, I don't know if Joel or Holling says it, but but they say no man could move his bowels in here. I think it's Joel upon entering and seeing the room. Holling says, you know, this is Shelly. She's nesting like a November spruce hen. And, uh, you know, the, he, she was so happy uh, that I couldn't say no. And Holling says he intends to acclimate. He relates it to the uh, the people who climb Mount McKinley. They don't scale the mountain all at once. They go a little bit at a time, then they come back down, then they go back up again and again. It's a slow process, but they don't use like a they don't have to use an oxygen mask. It's like slowly acclimating as you climb a mountain, I guess, to the uh, atmosphere, the temperature. But I feel like this scene just ends with Joel saying he's going to hook hauling up with some mild laxatives. Is that right, or yeah. what, what comes out of this? Yeah, that's how the scene ends. He says, like, you know, just in case, I'll recommend you, uh, uh, you know, some mild laxatives to get you through the uh, to get you through the night. Uh, looking back at it, 
Looking back at this scene, uh, I didn't pay more attention to this, but almost every single surface in that room, so the drawer, the cabinet, the side cabinet that's next to the bed, they all have a glass unicorn on them. Mm. She is really yeah. loves that. And yeah, I, I think that acclamation is a really good theme for Hollying storyline because one way to get rid of homesickness is to acclimate to your new home. You can get rid of those past nostalgic feelings by just getting used to your new environment. So Hollying himself is also experiencing homesickness, but trying to overcome it. Yeah, I, I guess that is the, that's the only solution we have left here. And it is a bit odd that... Uh, I, I, I'm not saying that this doesn't feel completely resolved. It, it is kind of open-ended, but um, yeah, maybe that is what I'm saying. It, it's, it's a bit open-ended, but also just the fact that um, we don't really we don't really connect the dots or complete the circle or find a resolution for like Shelly. Like Shelly, I guess is just I guess she just got what she wanted, and and that's like the ending of her her arc for the story, you know. Don't you feel like it's it's like left a little open? Yeah, I now that you're saying that, you're revealing that to me. When I was watching it, for some reason, I thought that that was like a decent resolution. I was like, okay, that that got the job done. Because I feel like there's in my a lot mind, more sorry. I feel like there's just a lot more about like Shelly maybe if this is if we're supposed to believe that the uh that this whole her choice of decor is uh retreating to like a certain innocence or a certain childhood but maybe it's just a little bit of that flavor like that's her reaction to becoming a a married woman we know in the last episode she doesn't like to wear the ring because it makes her feel old so this is another way of her like retreating into her youth maybe yeah that's a really good interpretation of it i think there's only so much time that they could dedicate to the storyline because the (laughs) other two are much more beefier yeah so yeah, I felt like the writer probably was like, I'm just going to allocate the resolution toward hauling side and I'm going to have the I'm going to have the conflict be within him then rather than be with Shelley. Yeah, and it is resolved. Hauling says he's going to acclimate and in the end that's great. It's like he's going to compromise. It's his place, but he wants Shelley to be happy, so he'll acclimate. And Joel's going to help him out with some laxatives. So, uh, we don't have to worry about his health. <laughs> So, uh, rewinding back to the beginning, we've got just two other plot lines, right? Yeah, we only have two other major plot lines. Uh, you want to stick with Maurice? Yeah. So, our opening soundbite was showing, uh, like, Maurice talking about his childhood home. Well, the first scene with Maurice is, it's actually not where that soundbite is taken from. There's a scene before that with Maurice and Ed as they're walking through Sicily a semi-truck with an oversized load is pulling into town, and it carries, of course, the childhood home of Maurice. It's being, like, hauled into Sicily. And as uh, we see it approaching, Maurice explains to Ed that, uh, I can't remember, it was like the, it was going to be demolished for some sort of highway or some sort of road. So Maurice offered to move the house, like, to pay for it all, to be moved to the to the Tulsa Historical Society. Apparently, they said they didn't have room for it, so Maurice just brought it to Sicily, the house. Yeah, Maurice's moving house is what we're being treated to right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's uh, preserving his childhood home, and he's going to move it onto his land, which brings us to the next scene, 
where our soundbite comes from with Maurice and Ed walking around the house. Yeah, Maurice and Ed still together. Maurice is now showing Ed, I guess, the house up close. And you're right, the soundbite from the beginning of our episode, Maurice talks about how his father, actually it's funny, he says his father married a former Miss Tulsa. So similarly, like in the first episode of Northern Exposure, Maurice brings Shelley, who is Miss Northwest Passage, to Sicily. They're supposed to be like in a relationship before, you know, hauling and Shelley become entangled. Uh, so I just thought that was funny that Maurice's father, you know, married a, a, a beauty contestant, beauty pageant contestant, winner, I guess. But anyway, he brings Ed around uh, to the front of the house and describes, you know, what it would have looked like back in Tulsa. And he describes like a flower bed to Ed. Um, actually, I've got a soundbite I can play. Right back here is my mother's flower garden. White daffodils, tulips, and the most beautiful yellow marigolds between Tulsa and Uluga. Uh, I don't see any flowers, Maurice. Well, of course not. They, they ceased to exist years ago. They only exist in my mind's eye. Ah, very pretty. Yeah, Maurice is describing the flowers that used to be there. And yeah, I did a little deep dive into each one of the flowers. Welcome to the flower shop. No. So daffodils can mean a lot of things. There's not exactly like one meaning. They can either mean rebirth, respect, prosperity, or they can even mean a plead for return of affection or love, which is ultimately unrequ unrequited. The botanical name for daffodils is really interesting. I did not know this at all. It is actually Narcissus. Wow. So, yeah, we've all heard of the term like, oh, you're such a narcissist. <laughs> well, the story goes is that it comes from an old ancient Greek tale of a beautiful but conceited youth of the same name. And in one version of the tale, Narcissus falls in love with his own reflection in the surface of a pond. And transfixed by the beauty of his own image and unable to leave, he remains at the edge of the pond where he dies and is eventually transformed <laughs> into a clump of daffodils. Mm. In this, so the story goes is why daffodils can be found growing next to water, their trumpet-shaped blooms gazing down at their reflections. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, red tulips can mean fame, charity, or trust, and yellow tulips often mean one-sided love. And the big one, marigolds. This one was like the best use of marigold that I've seen in the episode. <laughs> so... Marigolds are often the flower of the dead, and they're used prominently in religious ceremonies and the Day of the Dead Festival in Mexico. And despite their cheery appearance, they're also associated with pain over the poor treatment of a loved one. Marigolds wow. mean an ill treatment of a loved one in Victorian flower language, as well as grief, despair, and mourning. So absolutely perfect for Maurice and his sibling, Malcolm. Yeah, we'll learn more about their history uh, as we continue down this plot line. But yeah, I think it's very important that, you know, the writer and and Maurice, when he delivered the line, um, Barry Corbin, uh, he pretty much like underlines, like, you know, he says like, you know, daffodils, tulips, and then he like really underlines the fact that there were marigolds there. You know, that's, that's very important. I don't know if that was in the writing, in the performance, uh, someone involved in the show, again, I, I keep saying this, they, someone involved in the show knows about flowers. Maybe I just don't know anything. Maybe we just don't know anything about flowers. Everybody knows this. And they're like <laughs> yelling at us as we keep talking. They're like, duh. But no, yeah, I, I, that is fascinating. I think that that definitely has 
Uh, I mean, it definitely has meaning, but I, d- I think it was purposefully intended. The background in this uh, scene is very beautiful. It's like the the mountains just in the background of this. It's just like something you can only see if you're shooting this show, you know, in the Pacific Northwest. Sometimes you get some pretty dazzling landscapes. Yeah, and it's it's funny. Uh, just the soundbite that we played. Um, the the I think it's cool that it's you know we're talking about the mind's eye, and these flowers have ceased to exist. But it's a uh, memory. It's nostalgia. It's uh, it, it, it's your imagination. And Ed can also see them as well if he uses his imagination, I guess. Or I don't know. I don't know exactly what's happening there. But Ed Ed reacts to the flowers. <laughs> very very pretty. He says. Maurice shows. Yeah. Also, Maurice leaves Ed here. He doesn't let Ed come inside. He says, "I'm gonna need some like time alone. So you stay out here, Ed. Like." Don't, don't come any further. Um, but Ed is not offended. He says, thank you for showing me the outside of your house, of your old house. And that's the end of that scene. The next time we see Maurice, I'm assuming is when he's inside. Yeah, it's him and Chris. Yeah, Maurice is showing Chris the inside of the house. He's showing him all the memories that he got, you know, slamming his head against the, uh, what was it, like the chimney area? What, what, the banister? He no, calls it's not it, banister. Um, he calls it the, the hearth, but it was the like hearth, a... Um, yeah like a chimney that I actually did the same thing or rather I think my brother like drop kicked me into the, <laughs> into the brick. I don't even remember it now, but Maurice uh, remembers it. He says, I cracked my brain pan. I've never heard that brain pan meaning skull. I've never heard that before, but he says, obviously there was a lot of blood and blah, blah, blah. I can't even remember. Like maybe did I black out or I don't, I feel like it when I hit it, it didn't even hurt me that much. And my parents, I, this, I'm, it's slowly coming back. When I like fell against the, the hearth, the chimney, against the brick, it probably cut a gash on my face or like above my eye or something near my temple, which is deadly. My parents were probably freaking out a lot. And me being a kid was just like, probably didn't hurt me that bad. So I was like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. But I did have to get stitches. Uh, yeah. Dang. Sorry. <laughs> I have, uh, I've never gotten stitches my entire life. Oh wow! Yeah, have you speaks, ever uh, speaks more about my personality? <laughs> <laughs> well, have you ever come close? Like, have you ever like cut yourself and been like, "Oh crap, do I need stitches for this?" No, because I was a very careful, <laughs> scared uh, child. <laughs> I'm a very not... <laughs> yeah, I'm a very careful, scared man. Because uh, I, anytime I cut myself, I'm always worried that I'm like, "Oh crap, do I need?" Because I think you can. Um... <laughs> this is so dumb, but it's like you know. After a certain point, after a few hours, they can't stitch you up because it like there might be bacteria that gets into the uh, wound. Yeah. So I'm always worried that I'm like, oh man, do I need stitches for this? Uh, I better like like I only have a certain window. Like I better decide. Like is it that bad? And of course, it's I haven't gotten stitches probably since I was a kid. Yeah, since I was a kid. So, uh, yeah, I just constantly worry about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Maurice is still showing Chris around. He's uh, going, he's taking a little trip down Memory Avenue, Memory Lane. And <laughs> he's saying like he could almost picture Malcolm sliding down the banister side saddle and that he would see him again. And that's where Chris goes and drops off some really cool trivia that I don't know about. He says that, well, let me find it. Petite Madeleine. It's a French pastry. It was Marcel Proust's favorite when he was a little kid. And when he's in his 30s, he bites into one. His whole childhood comes rushing back to him. Out pop 16 volumes of Remembrance of Things Past. And then, of course, 
He spent the last 15 years of his life in a cork line bedroom. Yeah, it's great. There's a, I actually found this excerpt from Marcel Proust, Proust? Yeah, actually, I think I would always say Proust, but I think Chris says Proust, so maybe it's that. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's a little excerpt, and it goes, No sooner had the warm liquid mixed with the crumbs touched my palate than a shudder ran through me, and I stopped, intent upon the extraordinary thing that was happening to me. An exquisite pleasure had invaded my senses, something isolated, detached, with no suggestion of its origin. And at once, the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to me, its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory. This new sensation having had on me the effect which love has of filling me with a precious essence, or rather this essence was not in me, it was me. Whence did it come? What did it mean? How could I seize and apprehend it? And suddenly the memory revealed itself. The taste was that of the little piece of Madeline, which on Sunday mornings at Combray, because on those mornings I did not go out before Mass, when I went out to say good morning to her in my bedroom, my Aunt Leonie used to give me, dipping it first in her own cup of tea or tisane, the sight of the little Madeleine had recalled nothing to my mind before I tasted it, and all from my cup of tea. It's a great homesick metaphor. Yeah, the idea of involuntary memory, I think, is a big deal in that um, Chris says, uh, remembrance of things past. It's also been translated as in search of lost time which I think is a more direct translation. A la recherche du temps perdu. Uh, sorry, my French accent is almost <laughs> as bad as Mike's. Uh, but yeah, the idea of involuntary memory is fascinating because whenever you think about memory, you're in your head and you're often recalling your memories, trying to remember you know, what you had for breakfast or you know, when you had sat uh, that time for the meeting that you got to go to or what happened last week or, or whatever. But sometimes memory will just strike you out of the blue. And what causes that? Is it, you know, the petite Madeleine, the, the little pastry that he had? Sometimes it's a lot of different things. People will say uh, smell recalls your memory pretty strongly. Like, like smell is very strongly tied to memory. But apparently the, you could write a lot about it. There's like, what did he say, 16 volumes it's, I think it's like the longest book ever written, right? Or one of the longest texts. Mm, I didn't know that. I, I'm pretty sure this is like, it's the climax of Ratatouille, right? I haven't it's seen Ratatouille. What? <laughs> What's, so you can spoil <laughs> it for me. Yeah, I think like one of the uh, critics comes into the restaurant and he takes a bite of ratatouille oh, that okay. they serve him, and then like immediately he's like shot back into childhood. It's like the same exact thing. Gotcha. Yeah. I think there's a thing like that in. Um, the God of Cookery. Do you know that? Uh, <laughs> what is that? It's the guy who did like Shaolin Soccer. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Uh, Stephen Chow. <laughs> the God of Cookery. It's pretty awesome if you like Shaolin nice. Soccer or uh, what's that other movie? I'm not, I can't. Kung Fu Hustle. That's the one. But regardless, oh, the last little bit of trivia that Chris relates is that um, I don't. I don't know why you know he's prompted to say this, but Chris just is just like yeah, and then of course. Proust spent the last 15 years of his life in a cork-lined bedroom, which I looked up. Like I was like, what is a cork-lined bedroom? I just Googled cork-lined bedroom. And it's not a thing. It's just a thing that Proust did like in the last 15 years of his life. Apparently, he basically just like stayed in bed all day and just like would wake up and write and just like write in bed and do everything and then just go back to, you know, like he would, I, I would imagine he never got up too much maybe. And uh, 
I think the idea of the cork-lined bedroom was to block out outside sound, which was like a distraction. And also he had like very terrible allergies. And apparently the cork was supposed to protect for that. It doesn't, I, any of the articles I read didn't explain why, but that was like the reasoning behind corked for some reason hmm. or cork. That's really interesting. I didn't read into the historical uh, nature of it. I just thought it was another example of home. So for the last 15 years of Prowse's life, his home was just like this small isolation uh, where he could only be with his mind. Mm. Yeah, and perhaps so. Well, that's that scene. We can go on to the next scene with Maurice. And again, it's with Chris and Maurice, I believe. Chris this time pulls up on a snowmobile approaching a... Maurice's old home, childhood home. And uh, he joins Maurice inside and uh, there's a little secret hiding place under the steps of the stairs that Maurice shows him. There's like a whole uh, mnemonic device. Is that is that what it's called? Yeah, he uses a mnemonic device to remember which of the stairs is the, uh, ha- the where his treasure chest is. Yeah, and, and inside there's like a little... It's almost like a little cigar box or something, but it's got a bunch of little toys. I think it looks like maybe a cap gun, uh, a little toy sheriff star. And uh, Maurice, what's the the most important, Maurice pulls out like these little toy fish. I think they were supposed to be like magnetized. Like you could, uh, you'd have like a little fishing reel that you would throw with a magnet at the end and it would fish out the, the fish, the magnetic fish. And in this scene, we learn that, you know, these these do not belong to Maurice. They're actually Malcolm's fish, and Maurice stole them from Malcolm. Yeah, he says the mind reels of the vindictiveness of young people. And that's definitely true. Like, you, you just, I mean, you just don't realize uh, how cruel your actions can be and how much it can have a lasting impact. You know, you just, you just don't have enough life experience to realize that. And... Yeah, but we get some uh, nice resolution with this because the next scene has Maurice drinking a cup of tea on oh, the yeah. sofa. Very relaxing. He's like listening to an old jazz song, like a record. Mm-hmm. Oh, crap. It actually says the, I forgot to write it down. It's like Dream in the Moonlight or something. Like the track listing is on the subtitles. Right. Uh, but it's not on Moose Chick. Billy Holiday, Let's Dream in the Moonlight. Yeah, I was going to say, it does sound like a, a famous singer. So I didn't want to like say the wrong thing. Uh, Billy <laughs> Billy Holiday is singing, very cozy. He's got the fireplace going. Uh, but but keep going. Go ahead, Charles. Oh yeah, yeah. And out pops up a little boy who descends down the stairs, and obviously it's Malcolm. I I had actually forgotten. Yeah, because it, it's been since season one where it was revealed that. Maurice had a brother. If I remember correctly, I don't think he was in good terms with his brother. That's right. I think, um, yeah, wow, it was a a Kodiak moment, episode seven. Yeah, I was trying to figure it out. Uh, Malcolm had died. It was that episode when he had when he had died, and uh, Maurice has to like uh, he needs to continue his legacy. He fears that his legacy is going to um, to run up dry or something. That's when he adult adopts Chris. That's neither here nor there. We're talking about this episode. Yeah, I think you are right that they were not on great terms. I think it was mostly having to do with Maurice's father and maybe Maurice trying to prove his worth to his father. I think the idea was that Maurice's father maybe favored Malcolm. He was the baby, like, you know, he was the younger. And also 
something about Maurice becoming an astronaut was not the same as like Malcolm was a, also a military man or something like their father. Can't quite remember, but that sounds right, right? Yeah, that sounds about right. I, I do remember them having tensions between the two. But yeah, they reminisce about the home. Uh, very lovely naturalistic dialogue right there. And that's where Maurice apologizes and says like, uh, the fish that you had, I had stole them. And I want you to know that I'm truly sorry. It's a great performance, honestly. Yeah. Like, I, There's a lot working in this scene. From yeah. the shot composition to the acting to the dialogue, everything's working in tandem. Yeah, I, I totally agree. The, this is actually, um, if you watch the deleted scenes, it does go on a little bit longer. Like Maurice actually stands up, he starts walking around, and then he does sit back down to deliver like that. I'm sorry, I'm truly sorry. However, I think I agree with you, Charles. This scene is amazing. Like it's already fine. Like I can understand why they cut out the deleted scene. Like it doesn't need to be longer. I think it works fine. It's just almost like more bloated if you add more stuff to it. Like we kind of get where this is going. We understand. There's not a whole lot of tension in this storyline. Obviously there's the internal tension. I think that's the the biggest problem, but very hard to um, portray, to externalize. But I think it they do so pretty well in this scene with, you know, face-to-face with Mal. And um yeah, it's pretty amenable by the end of it. Mal Malcolm uh, obviously forgives Maurice. He says it's okay. You know, he's like a kid. He's treating Maurice also like, I think it's interesting. Malcolm says, you know, you you got a lot older, like so fast or something uh, when, he, when he first enters the scene. Anyway, that's the end of Maurice's plot line in this episode. The last plot line that we haven't touched on yet is Mike Monroe. Uh, we didn't mention, this is Mike Monroe's last episode on uh, Northern Exposure. You could have guessed that, I guess, uh, Charles, because, you know, by the end of the episode, he's leaving the town. But I should go ahead and say that the actor doesn't return to the show. Oh, wow. Not even for the uh, season finales? Yeah, not even. I guess maybe that's a bit of a spoiler, but uh, this is this is him gone. So... Uh, Dang. Sorry Sayonara, about that. Mike. <laughs> yeah, so maybe we'll take that into account as we go through his uh, his plot line. So let's see. I'm kind of looking back at the beginning of my notes. He's not really introduced until a little bit further in the episode, uh, if we're talking about like the beginning of the show. It's like after we get Shelly's plot line, we get Maurice's plot line, then Mike, I think he goes to Maggie's house I'm actually, I don't really know where this scene takes place. Maybe you can help me, but, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so the first scene is them at the brick, actually. Okay, it's whenever it's he's receiving his uh, his papers. Like, he's seeing how his levels are. And it turns out they're normal. And they're celebrating together. They're incredibly happy because Mike is, quote-unquote, normal. Yeah, he calls himself normal, healthy. Uh, Maggie says, don't you look like the cat that ate the canary? And I've never actually understood that saying. I mean, I guess I under, I get it. Like, I understand what it means. But, uh, like, I could interpret the expression if when I heard it, like when I saw it on screen. But if someone asked me, what does that mean? Uh, I wouldn't know what to say. So I looked it up. Cat that ate the canary, a person whose appearance and behavior suggest guilt mixed with other qualities, such as satisfaction or feigned nonchalance. A person who appears self-satisfied or smug. So probably that secondary definition, like don't you seem smug or happy or satisfied uh, because Mike is almost gloating. Like, oh, I've, he should be, you know, he feels like he's finally overcome his, um, 
Would you call it a disorder? What does he call it? I've actually forgotten now. Chemical, multiple chemical. Yeah, I think that disorder is probably a proper term for what he has. Yeah, but that's a short little bit, right? Because that ends that scene until, uh, I guess we might as well wrangle Joel in here because the next scene with Maggie is in Ruthann's store and it has Joel in it. Uh, They're kind of arguing. Yeah, so the next scene has them arguing uh, as for typical Joe and Maggie interactions. And really all this scene is demonstrating is that Joe's being, once again, uh, a jerk. And (laughs) Maggie's reacting to him being a jerk. But also, like, Joe's revealing something true. He's, you know, digging into something uncomfortable. So Joe's just basically saying, like, you know, you guys are just basically two different ends of the spectrum that need each other. One's codependent and one wants to provide for the other person with the codependency. So, you know, they make for two people that should belong together. I think it's hilarious. Joel says, I think it's endearing that two emotional cripples can find each other to lean on for support. Maggie also says to Joel that he's got a very fragile ego. You know, when when Joel's unhappy, everybody has to be unhappy. Uh, You know, I feel like we're retreading on stuff that has already been said a lot. Uh, Of course, we expect this scene. It feels very by the numbers is, I guess, my complaint. But, hey, let's keep going. We've got the next scene with Mike. He's upstairs in his bubble. Like, I don't think I've ever actually seen anyone go upstairs in the uh, in the geodesic home that they've got there. Yeah. Ed has, like, come to a – I'm actually not sure. I guess make a drop-off, um, a delivery. Yeah, it's here to drop off some packages for him. And you're right. Uh, very rarely, if ever, were ever shown anybody being on the second level. But that's probably where he stores his, uh, I want to say it's like a fax machine or like a computer. I don't know <laughs> if they had computers back then. But it, it's something that is delivering information and communicating with him in some way because he's getting a load of information. He's saying like, you know, there's like uh, tanker holes of oil being dropped off in this in this in this ocean, there's just like a, there's just all sorts of injustice being done. Like the air in Mexico City is so toxic and dangerous. And yeah, uh, basically he goes down the stairs while talking about like, why should he be enjoying all the creature comforts of life? Like, you know, eating pizza near a candlelit dinner with someone significant. I need to be out there. I need to be fighting the good fight. Yeah. If the world is so messed up, how can, uh, how can he feel comfortable leading a normal life, especially now that he's been given a second chance. Like he feels like there's some meaning to that. He needs to make a difference. I think he says, make a difference out there. Again, about the upstairs, maybe it was uh, the production designer being like, okay, like if we're actually killing Mike in this show, we should like film a scene where he's upstairs. Like I built that whole loft and we've never used it. Like, come on. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I kind of, uh, I I wasn't, too aware of Mike's need to go confront the world. Like, I kind of knew, but this was, like, really revealing of his personality. And I wish we had known that before we had filmed, before we had recorded our Patreon episode, which is about Jungian archetypes this month. Ah. And we were detailing every single townsfolk of Sicily. And I think that would have maybe changed my answer for Mike. Yeah, this does seem like a somewhat new direction for Mike's character. Like, of course, we could see that being part of Mike, but this definitely seems like a step, a very deliberate step in a certain direction, I guess off the show, but like in a direction for his character. Obviously, this episode, as we'll see as we keep going, 
tries to make Mike out as uh, to be a hero. You know, like there's that whole sequence and uh, people are calling him hero throughout uh, the episode. That's not to say like hero archetype, but you know, th- there there is a, a certain portrayal of Mike that we're getting in this episode that we don't really see exactly the same in the rest of the show. Yeah, he's a lot more confident, a lot more assertive yeah, than yeah. he's ever been. I, I wish they would have had this mic from the beginning. <laughs> I, I thought he would have been a much more interesting character. But anyway, we go to the next scene that has Maggie and Mike, which is at that pizza dinner. Uh, and it, I, I just, like, the beginning of the scene is Maggie extolling the virtues of pizza. And I'm like, who is... I just don't understand the individual that doesn't like pizza. And I don't understand the people that think that liking pizza makes them like a very unique individual. This feels like a very written scene. Like, I don't know. I mean, of course, I don't know anyone who would just say like, what does she say? Let me find, let me, let me find the dialogue. You know, there is something just so great about pizza. I don't know what it is. I think it's the toasty crust and the squishy sauce and the cheese and the way it all comes together. Of course, like no one just like, I don't know, maybe maybe that is what some people say, but I don't know. I'm just like, man, this pizza smells really good. That's what I would yeah, say. Yeah, it's, it's cheese and carbohydrates. <laughs> it's very hard to mess up on that combo. <laughs> It just it seems very written, but I think I understand why it's set up this way because Maggie, in her dialogue, goes on to say like she keeps talking about aromas and very sensory feelings because she's like I can only imagine what it would be like to go through life. You know, I've taken this for granted. Uh, all these wonderful smells and feelings and and sensory uh, experiences. Uh, now that Mike will be able to experience because, you know, he's no longer got to live in this bubble. He doesn't have to like restrict his diet, things like that. So that, so that's where she was going with that. I guess the, the whole pizza, <laughs> the whole pizza. Uh, well, manifesto. there is like one interesting word that she uses. She says that it's like solitary confinement mm. for him, which would indicate that he used to live in a place that was alone. And now he is no longer in that place. That's no longer his home. Yeah. She's like she's ex- she's excited that you know they're going to share this together. Like he won't be alone anymore, but uh, it doesn't get very far because Mike produces. Uh, I think it's a telegram, a little slip of paper, and Maggie reads it. Michael Monroe report to Captain Peterson aboard the Sirius in Murmansk, twelfth of April, zero eight hundred hours. Uh, it turns out Greenpeace needs a lawyer. They're going to be investigating like uh, illegal dumping of like nuclear reactor waste stuff, like things like that. So he's going to join Greenpeace. Yeah, I think he's trying to investigate more into the stuff that he was learning about. But yeah, it brings us to the next scene where the rest of the town also learns that he's leaving. Chris is on radio at K-Bear talking about Mike leaving and saying how Ruth Ann's got these these little like victory ribbons that are made of recyclable material and that it's really just there so that you can buy it so that you can support Mike because he needs to get a, like a dry suit of some sort. Yeah, all the money that comes from people buying these ribbons will go to uh, Mike's uh, departure, like his fund uh, for the for the dry suit, etc. Ruthann is like selling, you know, getting these donations, selling these ribbons. And that's actually like in the same scene in The Brick when like Shelly has all these construction workers going through that we talked about. But I want to move to the next scene we see with Maggie. She's back at Ruthann's store 
Only Ed is behind the register now. And Maggie is like red-eyed, sad. She, she explains like, she, she says something like, we don't ever learn. Like, what is it? Like, uh, I, I think she's obviously talking about, uh, you know, her, her track record with relationships and, you know, never finding the one, I guess. She's very sad that Mike, she, I guess she feels uh, sort of, oh, I guess we didn't say this, but in the scene when Mike, you know, admit, you know, tells Maggie that he's going to be leaving, he's going to go join Greenpeace. Uh, Maggie just asks him to leave. You know, she's not a, not thrilled. She says, I think you should leave now. Uh, so now in Ruth Ann's store, she is just like letting out all her feelings in front of Ed and Ed doesn't really know how to respond specifically because, or especially because Maggie starts talking about sex uh, with Mike. She says it wasn't very amazing, but she was uh, maybe impressed in a way that Mike didn't change after sex. Like they were still like on the same level, on the same terms. I think she appreciated that, uh, though she says uh, the sex was not very, uh, she just says it wasn't amazing. And uh, she also mentioned some weird, like, she talks about, like, whipped cream and kitchen tables. Uh, and Ed uh, just really has no response. He, he His only response is, uh, well, Maggie? Uh, and she's like, yeah. He says, that's going to be $14.30. Like, he's ringing her up at the register. He, he doesn't really <laughs> know what to do. Yeah, so it's a typical scene that's showing to, like, Maggie loves Mike, but also, like, here's some seeds of doubt for the audience. Like, maybe he wasn't <laughs> the one because he was, like, didn't, uh, because he wasn't what she was, like, subconsciously desiring in a partner. You know, things like that. Uh, which follows us into the next scene, which I, it's also another paint by the numbers scene where Mike is talking with this old, uh, fella. I'm not too sure if we've seen this guy before. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, uh, we've seen him before in the episode when like Hauling and Ruthann are going bird watching, bird hunting. Oh, bird watching. isn't his name like Walt? Walt, yeah. It's Walt. Yeah. He's got, yeah, a, great, it's a, Walt. got a great voice and he's like uh, talking to Mike. He's like, you know, when I was younger, I would like, I would have joined you in a minute. Like, I, I'm so excited for you, Mike. <laughs> I'm going to come join Greenpeace with you, but I'm... Too bad I can't, because I'm too old. <laughs> too old. <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, Mike meets Maggie on the street, and Maggie's like, oh, you know, I got these things. Let's just do the number one thing and uh, not communicate. <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's, it's not do that. Mike, she just leaves. Yeah, Mike tries to break off for Walt to uh, to apologize, and you're right. Maggie says, like, I've, I don't have time right now for this. So it doesn't go, that doesn't go anywhere. Like, she just she just leaves. But... Oh, yeah, the next little sequence is pretty interesting. It's sort of, uh, I wouldn't call it, oh, yeah, it actually is a dream sequence because Maggie wakes up and it was her dream. But it's like a black and white newsreel. And they're talking about like the Royal Air Force fighting Nazis and stuff. You see like newsreel of these like planes flying out. And then we get like a close-up on Marilyn and she's dressed like in, I guess, sort of like military, um, like formal wear, I guess. I don't know what you call that. But she's like, attention calls the room to attention and there's like a whole strategy briefing where Joel is like a general or some sort of uh, military leader. And he's like pointing at a map and, and doing like this strategy briefing. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just looking at my notes. He talks about, well, he needs a volunteer for this mission 
he talks about this mission. It's like, it's the Minotaur, it's Medusa, it's the Cyclops. Uh, and he says, have we not been reading our Joseph Campbell? He takes out a book of the hero's journey <laughs> and starts breaking it down for him there. Yeah, he talks about separation, initiation, and return. For those of you who don't know, uh, what it is is a hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder, separation. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won, initiation. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man, return. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it's actually kind of interesting because it is demonstrating how one can leave their home and change in another location and then return home a new individual. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, the hero's journey, obviously a notable text about like, you know, uh, you can relate this to like the Odyssey and all these uh, Greek myths and things. But also like, I think it's a, a important text for like writers, I, I think even today, but probably like was very big uh, for writers in the 90s and even before that, uh, Joseph Campbell huge what is it like man with a thousand faces is that the name of the uh the hero with a thousand faces hero with a thousand faces that's another uh joseph campbell text but anyway to to get to this dream uh it goes on for a for a bit talking about the hero's journey and then mike steps in and he says i'll do it i'll take out the bridge and maggie stands up she's apparently at this briefing and she says it's too dangerous yada yada uh, Mike ends up just doing it. He's saying he's going to do it. And, and then Maggie wakes up from her dream. Yeah. It's been a while since we had a dream sequence, actually. Like, That's have we, true. Have we been, yeah. You know, you know, like keeping watch on this. Cause I want to say it's at least been like, shoot, like <laughs> yeah, since the beginning of the season, maybe and even then, I don't even remember if there was a dream sequence then. Yeah, man. I, I actually, I could not tell you. I'm looking back at the episodes and, uh, it's been a while. It feels that we've seen like a, a dream sequence, like a real, this is like a full-fledged, like it's got its own style. And then you obviously see someone like waking up after it. So it's like, oh, that was a dream. I almost think that it could work if they didn't wake up from a dream. Cause I think the yeah, audience yeah. would know that it's a dream. So you can just cut out you know, a couple of seconds right there. <laughs> I agree. But I guess since this is just like primetime TV, they're, they're going to uh, tell, you know, broadcast it a little, like a little more. So just yeah. anyone's watching this understands what's going on. Uh, that's the end of that dream. The next uh, scene is with Joel. And uh, Marilyn is like, she she has like this sweater that she was knitting and she's like measuring it on Joel. She's like checking. It's like, hey, let me, let me see. Let me see how this, you know, how this looks. And Joel is like, oh, you know, like my birthday was like three weeks ago. You didn't get me anything. I guess this is fine. Like I'll accept this. And uh, she says, no, this is for Mike. And uh, Joel's like, uh, you know, he wants a sweater. He's he's uh, upset. Marilyn says that Mike is an eagle, a hero. And Joel, uh, you know, ha has an issue with this. He says, no, a hero is is like Jonas Salk. A hero is Norman Schwartzkopf. Schwartzkopf? Sorry. And Reggie an Jackson. Yeah, I didn't know who that was. Jonas Salk being the... Uh, you know, the inventor of the polio vaccine, uh, Reggie Jackson, the baseball player, and Norman Schwarzkopf is, uh, I think, an American general during, like, the um, Kuwaiti, the Gulf War, sorry. Yeah, those are all topical picks for uh, heroes in the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, I've got this little soundbite here 
which is part of this this scene with with Joel and Marilyn. You're jealous. I'm jealous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it's very interesting. If if I say the least little thing about Mike that might be construed as negative or critical, suddenly I have a problem. Suddenly I have a fragile little ego, and and I'm jealous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Throughout this episode, Joel is constantly ragging on Mike, and no one appreciates Joel. I mean, I mean, just like he. It's it's oftentimes thrown right back at Joel anytime he has like any sort of criticism for Mike, which I think is a little messed up because uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think the townsfolk are projecting what they believe Joel's feeling onto him. So yeah, like you said, it is a little unfair. <laughs> I think that he has like some validity to his claim. But in a way, we get to go to a garage sale. Mike is pawning oh, yeah. off his possessions. <laughs> Selling a lot of things. Sells like a little carbon filter to Dave the Fry Cook. Dave's saying that his home is being infested by beavers. <laughs> That's pretty wild. Hey, did you notice in this scene uh, during the garage sale, Ed enters and he says like, Mike, like he calls he calls out to Mike uh, to get Mike's attention. Uh, I'm trying to find the time code for it so you can check it out. But when Ed says Mike, it sounds like a dog yelp. Like it doesn't even sound like the word Mike. It's just like it was subtitled. So <laughs> yeah, I, I hear it. Yeah, do you, do you know <laughs> what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, I definitely. I did not catch that for some reason. I think it's because I I rely so heavily on subtitles right. now Reading that the, oftentimes I'll miss like the the tenor of the voice. Right. But I think what happened is I heard it and I was like, "Whoa, what is going on?" Like I I maybe like took my headphones off and thought it was like happening in my house or something what's the, what's the time code for that by the way that's uh for me it's 2856 2856 yeah i think it also sounds like a door is opening at the same time like there's a squeak so mm. i don't know they just didn't get that that line very clean anyway uh mike gives ed a whole stack of scrubs which i think is interesting because i think the first time when ed meets mike it might be the first time where we see mike in the show mike says oh you can keep the scrubs like that way i like i'm not going to like sanitize them like i've got plenty just keep the scrubs that you're wearing uh cuz cuz ed has to put scrubs on to enter into the bubble and uh ed is very appreciative he's like oh wow cool this is awesome uh now mike is giving ed the stack of scrubs uh, not for hygiene, but for costumes, like to use in movies. But uh, it turns out that Ed is here because he wants to join Mike. He wants to be part of this movement. And I'm freaking out here because I thought we were about to like, it's like finally we get to, we get to expel Mike from the show, but he's going to take Ed with him. No, please, God, no, please. <laughs> I, like, I kind of saw the possibility, but I was like, mm, like 10, 10%. You were like, like it's like, not gonna, that's not gonna happen. Like, you already yeah. knew, you already knew it wasn't gonna happen. Yeah, it, it leads to a, a pretty, you know, it's a decent scene. You know, it's Mike trying to say, like, each of us has to serve or he can do the most good. Ed using the example of Casablanca in order to get his point across, you know, of course, using <laughs> pop culture to communicate. And, you know, it's true. You know, Mike is shedding some very neat axioms about life. You know, saying like, Ed, you're needed here in Sicily, Alaska. Your skills as an everyday man and your in your artistry as a filmmaker, it's what this town needs. And, you know, it's all just here to showcase that Mike doesn't belong here. Mike is needed elsewhere. Yeah, that's a good point. Mike doesn't belong here. <laughs> uh, but no, I do like that he says like, well, it's like to set an example. Like, I think that is a very 
strong. It's a great message to put out here. But also it makes sense that Ed can make documentaries. Like he can document global warming. He can document what the world is like and uh, make an impact to people, like communicate to people through, through film. It's jumping ahead a bit, but I think that the sentiment in this scene when Mike is like, you know, stay here in Sicily and set an example for others. I feel like Mike's like final message when he's leaving the town I feel like it's um I feel like it's a bad I feel like it's a bad message for fighting climate change like I let's skip ahead just so we can talk about it um but sure. when when he's leaving uh Mike says like I give my solemn oath that wherever there is like pollution wherever there is uh nuclear waste wherever there's this xyz I'll be there and it's almost as if he's saying like I'll take care of it I will be the hero for you like I'm going to make a change in the world, which is awesome. Like that's a great send off. But I feel like if you're talking about like fighting climate change, you should be trying to like inspire everyone else. Like you don't want to be like, don't worry about this. Like I'm going to take care of it. Uh, it should be more of a call to action, I think, you know? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I think yeah, you have a very good point about that. You know, there's a whole lot of uh, discussion to be had on consumer ethics on to, like, how much can the individual actually influence into climate change or whether it needs to be a collective response by us. And it's, you know, it, I think we talked about this We did, before. yeah. And Mike's introduction, mm-hmm. uh, we were, we went really heavy into this. And I'm still of the belief that, like, yeah, like, individually, we can impact it, uh, just, not, just not as much as we think it can. But, yeah. like, if we all give up, then you're certainly... You certainly will not handle it at all right there. And you're right that Mike saying that he's going to shoulder the responsibility of uh, solving climate change is obviously like it's it's not the right message to give off. But also it was 1993 and Al Gore wasn't here yet. <laughs> yeah. So like the message wasn't as strong back then. So I'll give them a like yeah. way more leeway for that. That's, that's true. It's like they – it wasn't as big of a thing. I don't know. It was still very fresh or very new, you know, at the time. But I mean, if you're going to have a character that's talking about climate change and like, if this is the the big send off, like if that is, you could really use Mike as a mouthpiece for fighting uh, global warming, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, you know, again, I, I just don't think the writers knew about the yeah. how, how large of a consequence it was. I, I think, Shoot, I mean, even if you just go back like uh, like eight or nine years, people are still somewhat skeptical. They were just yeah. like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Like, you know, it wasn't until recently that it became like a real challenge in most people's minds. Yeah. And yeah, it's just like the attitudes towards it, the ideas behind it just weren't there because it was, you know, like this was sort of a um, a, a strange, odd character. You know, this character, Mike Monroe, like these ideas were very... I think we were even talking about how uh, at the time of one of these episodes, Mike mentioned something like, you know, they're not even factoring in jet fuel, like stuff like that, like jet, like jet emissions, like that wasn't even being factored into global warming or or something like, or greenhouse gas emissions, things like that. Uh, so anyway, very early on in this, uh, you know, global environmentalist movement. But well, that was the end of the the plot line, but there's still more that we didn't talk about. Uh, Maggie goes to Mike to say goodbye, and they have a moment. 
she says, you know, you're just about the bravest man I ever knew. And Mike says, no, you're like, you're the brave one. You inspired me to take that first step out of the bubble. If it hadn't been for you, I'd still be a prisoner in this dome. Yeah, I, I think that's like decent writing. It's getting the point across. I, I'm I'm certainly understanding what the writer is trying to do. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. I don't want to say that there's anything <laughs> wrong. But I think that a more, I don't know, like a more talented writer can ring out more information or at least present it in a in a much more gripping or unique fashion. Because I feel like this one was just trying to do the bare minimum of what it was trying to present in terms of information. And I think that, you know, it's fine by itself. But being that this is Northern Exposure and there's been some great moments throughout it, I was really hoping there'd be like a really amazing send-off for Mike. Yeah, there, there's no surprises here. The conflict between Maggie and Mike uh, is resolved pretty easily. It's uh, kind of corny in its own way, you know. It's 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 definitely on that line of being a little corny. Um, but I mean, what can you do? It's like kind of a short, distilled scene, you know. And I think we get like a sort of like a, a reflection of this scene later when. Mike goes to um, to see Joel. Now he goes into Joel's office uh, with a ventilator. Or, or <laughs> sorry, I showed my notes. Mike gives Joel a ventilator or some nerd <laughs> like that because <laughs> they do nerd out about it. Let me. So Mike goes into Joel's office and he's brought Joel a ventilator. It's like a obviously we just saw that Mike was giving away a lot of his stuff as a garage sale, I guess to raise money for his travels with Greenpeace. And uh, he's giving Joel this ventilator as like a gift. He says, you know, no matter what you thought about me, you always provided me with excellent medical care. And um, he asks Joel to be there for Maggie. There's some discussion like Joel's like, oh, trust me, like Maggie, I'm the last person that Maggie would want around. Like we're constantly at each other's throats. But Mike is insistent. He's like, be there, Joel, be there for her. And yeah, this has started to take a bit of like, it's starting to get a little, feel like it's taking on some weight. Like it's, it's getting a little heavier, but I don't know if I really buy it. It's a little overly dramatic maybe, but I mean, I understand we're sending off Mike. We want to like do him justice, I guess, but I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It is like very heavy handed right there. And it's not really the characterization of Mike that we've known beforehand. Now, you could argue and say, like, well, Mike's a changed man. He's, uh, he's right, normal yeah. now. His levels are normal, so therefore <laughs> he's turning into uh, a different being with a different personality. Yeah, I, I get that argument, but, y you know, it's just that it's... It feels, like, undeserved, maybe. Yeah. A little bit, just to come out of the... Even if, like, it... Because Mike's been around for a while, but it just kind of pops up pretty quickly, and then everyone's like... Mike is this hero now. We love Mike. We love Mike. Uh, and we're going to miss you. Yeah, I, I like the assertiveness that Mike has now. I think that this makes him a more interesting character in my mind. Yeah. Uh, I like that he delivers the line saying, like, 
be there because like, he's repeating the same line yeah. instead of like responding to what Joel is saying. And that's that's neat by itself. But still, like you said, uh, we, we've we only had one episode to see this. And <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's like they're just really packing home Mike and making him out to be like, yeah, this we, you should feel sad that he's leaving. <laughs> I wonder what like, I wonder what uh, fans of the show while it was airing, I wonder what the audience thought of like Mike. Were there like letters that were like, we got to get Mike out of Northern Exposure? Was it something else that just like the writers were just realizing that they couldn't really work with a lot? Like, I feel like we were talking about this in episodes leading up to this, Charles, how Mike just feels like a little bit out of place, a little clunky, like there's not a lot for him to do once they've kind of like shown him as the hypochondriac and the lawyer they just keep hitting on those notes every once in a while, but most of the time he just doesn't have any agency in any of the scenes he's in. But um, yeah, I, I'm curious to know if like there was backlash or if this was just something that the show just decided like, uh, we can't really work with this character. He's not really working, so we got to cut him off. Yeah, that'd be really interesting to know. I, I think that overall, Mike's purpose from what I can gather, is to make Maggie reevaluate her relationship with Joel because there wasn't a, um, a, a another quote-unquote competitor for her affections. So they had to introduce a third wheel yeah. to, to really bring about the drama between Maggie and Joel. I think it, overall, I think it did its job. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't, you know, if, if we're, if we're going to judge Mike because this is his last episode. So this is like all cards on the table. Let's just see what Mike is at. I, I thought that he was going to be worse yeah. than I thought. And then when Same. I initially saw Mike, I would end Mike at like like a seven and a half. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, I think on paper, it's great. Like he's more conflict for this uh, romance. And I loved the idea that he is an untreatable patient because he has this disease that, or he has this disorder syndrome that Joel doesn't believe in, you know, like that Joel can't uh, cure because he believes that it's not a thing. It's psychosomatic or whatever. But I think ultimately what ended up happening, especially early on, is just that Mike steals the spotlight and steals the focus of the show with a character that is a little less interesting. Like you're saying, Charles, you like how he's evolved in this episode and changed. We didn't get that in the first episodes where we had Mike. He was just this strange new character who, I don't know, wasn't like entirely intriguing. But um, I think, you know, throughout the episodes that he was included in, I think there's some pretty great ones. And he has some decent, some cool moments. So overall, you know, I think I will have to agree with you, Charles. I remember hating Mike. I didn't hate him as much this time, but... uh, I'm interested to see what happens with him gone in the next episode. I think I actually would have appreciated Mike more if there was more episodes on him that were less focused on Maggie. Because I'm thinking back on the episodes with Mike that didn't have that. And I think probably my favorite one is when he's defending Joel in court. And I thought that they were using his lawyer skills. I thought it was a fun episode with him. And it was really delving into his, uh, his disorder. I think had they leaned on that a little bit more it would have made viewers accept him more as one of the townsfolk. Whereas in this situation, it made him feel like someone that was competing against Joel. 
So he never could have properly assimilate into Sicily. I, I think that's his biggest cardinal sin. Uh, honestly, I wouldn't mind if they kept Mike for the rest of the show as long as they laid off of the <laughs> very Maggie-Joel love triangle thing. If yeah. they resolved it and they still kept Mike and he was still like, yeah, you know, he's like the guy who doesn't like having to touch dirty things. He, you know, wears like a space <laughs> suit, whatever. I would have been fine with that. I would have been like, cool. Maybe you can interact with other townsfolk like Chris or uh, Maurice or Holling. See how that dynamic goes. You're right. In this iteration of him being like a competitor, uh, he's an obstacle. Like that that's what it is. It's like an obstacle to Joel and Maggie's love. So the only solution to that obstacle uh, would be to destroy it or to work your way around it, you know? So in this iteration, like this is the only outcome that could happen. Like he needs to leave the show if Joel and Maggie are going to get together, which is that's kind of the one of the central driving elements of the show. Okay. Well, the scene when Mike is leaving, we kind of talked about his farewell speech. Well, uh, leading up to that, like he's about to climb onto the bus to leave Sicily. Everyone's gathered and they're kind of like following him as he's like the last moments before he gets on the bus. Ed is like shooting film. Ruthann is, uh, she runs up and she says, it's in, in my experience, you shouldn't travel without these two things, eye shades and elastic clothesline, uh, which is interesting. I've never traveled with either of those, but I think uh, eye shades would probably be very handy and probably an elastic clothesline too. That could that could come in in, uh, in handy in a pinch. Dave comes by and gives Mike the latest Judith Krantz. He says, it's not just a woman's book. It's a real page turner. Uh, he doesn't say the title of that book, but if it was the latest Judith Krantz in 1993, probably would have been Scruples 2 is what I was looking at. Uh, <laughs> like a sequel to the Scruples? Yep. It's a, it's, it's a, just called Scruples yep. 2? Like that's the title? <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't read Judith Krantz, but I did see that Scruples, I think it was her first novel. I could be wrong, but that is like one of her most successful. So she did she did a sequel to it. Um, Scruples 2. And it's Scruples T-W-O, not like Scruples uh, Roman like the numeral. Number. So interesting. But uh, Shelly gives Mike some oatmeal scotchies. I'm not sure what scotchies are. It's like. I I thought it was like some sort of cookie. Yeah. My impression of it. That's what I I think. Joel gives Mike uh, his medical file. Like all of their, you know, he's got the whole file. Like all of their interactions are cataloged in that file. And he recommends, I think this is interesting. He recommends that Mike carry some spare medicines just in case. Now, we know Joel doesn't believe that Mike is really sick, but this does show that he doesn't want Mike to have a bad time. Like, he wants Mike to be okay. Like, if he has some sort of allergic reaction or feeling, like, you know, take the medicines. It'll make you feel better, I guess. So it's like caring in a way. Yeah, it's a it's a sweet scene between Joel and Mike for their last send-off. And the very last person that he sees is Maggie, who gives him a sweet kiss. And then he gives his... Uh, Captain Planet speech, and then he leaves. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. I, I do want to touch on, this is the first episode that we've seen. Uh, instead of it going straight to the credits, uh, Joshua Brand, John Falsey, uh, it goes to a dedication. It says, dedicated to the memory of our good friend, John Yomi Roethlisberger, 1919 to 1993. Uh, I had to look it up. This was like an extra who was like, pretty much in every episode of the show. 
had passed away, I guess. And so they, they gave him a dedication in this episode. Ah, it's really sweet of them. I was trying to find a picture of him, but um, I, I couldn't find one. But I, I did find that he was obviously like a resident of the town of Roslyn where they shot uh, where they shot this series. So, you know, probably just like hanging out in Roslyn and they're always shooting there. He's like always in an episode. Oh, sorry. I'm also just reading. I'm, I'm on the trivia page now on IMDb. This final uh, speech that Mike gives, the uh, I'll be there speech, is apparently a parody of a speech at the end of The Grapes of Wrath. So that, I don't know, there's a literary, oh, literal, uh, literary okay. corollary. That makes sense. I know that Grapes of Wrath, doesn't it end? Similarly to that, like would they get on like a bus of some sort and they leave town? I'm not sure. I have never read it, but it does say that it's a uh, Tom Jode's speech at the end, just before he leaves his family. So he might be leaving. You know, it's like a it's a departure scene or something. Mm, like okay. this. Okay. Uh, anyway, okay, Charles, this is the point in our podcast where we bring on our guest, someone who has never seen the show before. For this episode, Charles, it's our friend Colin from high school. Uh, back from our hometown. Colin, we knew, obviously, from high school. But he's also a bit of like a class clown. I would say he was like, a, he's a full-fledged comedian. You know, like he would do stand-up in high school. And I know uh, he's just a very funny guy. I know he pursued some like acting and and like uh, improv. And uh, yeah, we're thrilled to have him check out this show and give us his thoughts. Now, actually, I don't know if he mentioned this. I guess we're about to hear it because I'm going to play it. I, I listened to it once, but uh, I can't remember if he mentioned this uh, in his recording or if he just texted this to me. But he like seems to remember, Charles, do you remember on our last episode where we talked about that pool table uh, falling down and we bleeped yeah. out uh, the person's house? But he seems to remember, Charles, that we were at that person's house watching like a bunch of us were like in a room watching Northern exposure while there was like a party going on, like a, like a house party. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm sure that happened. It was like me and uh, I'm going to bleep his name, but we were like, we would make like brew a pot of coffee and just like, we were also trying to force ourselves to enjoy coffee, like black coffee. So we would just drink coffee and, marathon northern exposure <laughs> that okay to like paint you viewers uh, to paint you listeners like a, a picture with my words you have to understand that this was like a giant party house uh where the parents for some reason did not like did not really mind or care or something so the 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 imagery of uh two teenagers watching this show in the background with a bunch of debaucherous degenerate crap is happening in the background is hilarious <laughs> Anyway, yeah, maybe he'll say that in his uh, in his review. If if he doesn't, he got a little inside scoop. But um, let's let's toss the mic to Colin. Hey, Charles. Hey, Lee. I hope you both are uh, doing very well. So I just got done watching uh, season four, episode twenty, uh, titled "Homesick." Um, okay, so I'll start off with like some of the characters. I did not like Maurice. I uh, I don't know. I got weird vibes from him. I. I don't know. He just seems like he's like up to something. He always just seems like he's up to something or hiding something. He, I don't know, had this weird toy stash like in his stairs or something. So I, I, I don't know. And then he, it was just weird. And then like he, I, it was a little out of context, but I think the little boy was like someone he was like imagining, like his little brother that he stole the fish from. 
Um, that, that story plot was a little boring to me and kind of weird. I, uh, I don't know. I just wasn't a, a fan of, of that particular character. Uh, he seems kind of like a, like a douche or I don't know. I just, I don't know. just wasn't a fan. Um, I did like Ed. Ed was cool. Um, he had the leather jacket. He's cool guy, Ed. Um, he, uh, you know, he seems like a very, uh, nice person, like a good friend, you know, he was willing to go with, uh, Mike to his trip to Russia or wherever it was to, uh, save the, the rainforest and all that kind of stuff. Um, it seems like he's very loyal and, um, seems like someone I would have a beer with and chill, chill with. Uh, I, I like Ed. Um, and then there was the relationship between Maggie and Mike, which seemed to be like the main focus of the episode. Uh, those two and then Joel have this weird kind of like love triangle, um, I, I don't really know the context because I'm kind of just coming into this episode, but it seems like it's probably for the best that Mike is leaving because she had mentioned something about like he's not adventurous in the uh, in the old potato sack. He um he you know he's she's like mentioned whipped cream or something and how he he's not into that kind of stuff and uh, I don't know. It seems like she's just maybe not as attracted to him uh, subconsciously as she thinks she is. And uh, I'm actually, I'm, I, it's funny because I didn't really see a lot of interaction between Joel and her, but I'm kind of rooting for those two to get together. Uh, they seem a little more compatible. And then there was uh, another character I really, really liked was uh, Ruth Ann. I've seen her, <laughs> I've seen her in something. I, I don't remember what it was, but I remember it was probably some kids movie from the 90s. But um, she's really cool. She seems kind of like the mom that takes care of the town. I uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd definitely probably be hanging out at her shop if I was stuck in that small town. And, uh, you know, she seems like the old lady that type would have a cigarette or something with you or cigar. Um, and then let's see. We at one part I did laugh out loud. So there was another sub story plot where it was uh, there was a uh, gentleman and his younger wife and they she wanted to remodel the house. I guess they must have recently just gotten married. And so she wants to remodel the house <laughs> and, uh, he, he's a little wary of doing that. And, um, so she, he, you know, he gives her permission and then she ends up, uh, the part I laughed out loud was, you know, she's like, you know, halfway through the episode, she, you see the guys working on the, um, the, the house or whatever. And then, you know, they finally show the big reveal and it's just like all pink, just like, like overkill pink, like heart shaped pillows. Like the walls are pink. The bed sheets are pink. Like, uh, the furniture's pink, like everything's pink. And, um, it makes him unable to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, have, uh, bowel movements. So he goes to see Joel and Joel's like, uh, another part I laughed out was, uh, loud was, when he's like, yeah, I've had a bowel movement every single day for 63 years. And Joel was like, every, every single day? And he's like, every single day? And uh, and this is like the first time in 63 years he hasn't been able to like uh, go number two. And uh, he's stressed out because she got rid of his uh, Athabascan footstool, which is a really fun word to say, uh, Athabascan footstool. Um, but yeah, she, uh, she got rid of that and he was a little, you know, he, he, I don't, it seemed like he maybe he didn't mind the pink, but that was kind of like the one thing that really, uh, set him over the edge was that she got rid of the uh, Athabascan footstool. Um, and then, yeah. And then Mike and Joel have a nice moment at the end, which I thought was cool. Uh, Mike basically, uh, gives Joel permission to, you know, he, he, it seems like he always kind of knew there was something between those two. And he's like, you know, watch over her. And, um, you know, he's like, I may never come back. And 
basically it's uh, giving him like like I guess permission to uh, date her. It was what was what I got from it. But um, yeah, and then everyone sees him off, kind of like a big small town thing. But uh, overall, I I thought the episode was good. Um, I the one I just didn't like Maurice and his plot. I, I don't know. I just I, I just didn't like that character. But um, all the other stuff I was into. Um, there was a few laughable moments. The characters mostly are pretty likable. Um, I think uh, overall, I would probably watch it. Uh, it wouldn't be first on my list uh, to be honest with you guys. I think. Uh, it's not like I can't really tell what the tone of the show is if it's like a comedy or or what, but it might just be because I'm watching a random episode in the middle of the entire series. So um, it's it's just kind of hard to tell what like what the tone of the show is when you're coming in uh, randomly in the middle. But um, it, you know, there's definitely other shows uh, from that era that I. I would say maybe like more maybe just from nostalgia because I never even had heard of this show, but um, but I, I would definitely give it a chance. Um, but like I said, it probably wouldn't be like first on my list. But uh, but yeah, um, thanks for having me on, guys. I really enjoyed watching that and reviewing it. Um, I hope both of you are doing really well. Um, take care. Bye. All right, that was Colin's notes on this episode. Thanks, Colin, for watching and and uh, giving us your thoughts. Something I haven't pointed out yet. Uh, this is the, you know, Colin says it's the fourth, it's the 20th episode in the fourth season. This is 420 episode. So I know that has something to do with like smoking it's culture. It's the weed number. <laughs> it's the weed number. <laughs> uh, but I don't think there's any smoking in this episode. They weren't hip to that back in the 90s, at least not on broadcast uh, primetime TV. But um, Colin points out, uh, right up front, did not like Maurice. I thought it was funny. He said, uh, he said, Maurice gave him some weird vibes. He seemed like he was up to something or hiding something. And I can see that actually. Like there's that moment when he's showing Ed the outside of his childhood house, but then he's like, oh, Ed, like stay down there. Like you can't, you can't come in here. It's not for you. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a body I need to attend to. <laughs> Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, but yeah, I think overall, I think really what it is, is like, uh, Colin just was like, he found it kind of, he said he found it boring and weird, the storyline with Maurice. So anytime they would come back to Maurice, it's just like, uh, no, no more of this, please. I, I don't, I don't need to see this. Uh, yeah, that's just like a subjective thing. I think, um, yeah, I think I, this, it's an interesting storyline for me because it recalls in myself, like, uh, my memory and my nostalgia, but also, I, I don't think it's like necessarily like the 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 heavy hitter of the episode, or I don't know. I don't know if this episode does have a heavy hitter. It's not. It's not one of my favorites uh, of late. Yeah, I I think that we enjoyed it because we we know who Maurice is. Yeah. Uh, we understand that he doesn't show vulnerability that much. True. Yeah. So for us, we're like, oh, this is a really neat uh, character moment. Right. First, like for Colin, who's never seen it, he's like, I, I don't. I don't like the sketchy guy. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> he's like a dog that like immediately is distrustworthy of like a stranger. Like you know, how, like a dog will look at somebody and like their tails goes yeah. up and like starts snarling. That starts, starts growling. <laughs> That's why I got the imagery right there. Uh, he liked Ed. Yeah, thought he was a cool guy. Um, said he would get a beer with him. I would. I would definitely enjoy a beer with Ed. Uh, I think. It's common that uh, pretty much most all of our guests, you know, usually like Ed. Um, and then with Maggie and Mike and Joel, uh, Colin says he doesn't really have the context, but 
it's probably for the best that Mike is leaving. And of course, yeah, more than you know, Colin, it's definitely very good that Mike is, you know, or we, we appreciate that Mike is leaving. Uh, but Colin says it's because, you know, Mike is less adventurous in the potato sack, he says. And uh, uh, I, I'm happy to hear that Colin is rooting for Joel and Maggie to get together. Uh, because, you know, even if we see that they are at at odds with each other, that is just like sort of programmed in us when we see like opposites attract. You know, that's like we we root for Joel and Maggie to get together. Yeah. He also said that he really enjoyed the character of Ruth Ann, saying that that would be the place that he would hang out in if he was stuck in Sicily, Alaska. And he said that he maybe remembered her from like an old TV film. I'm thinking that the only one that he could have saw was something from 1994 called How the West Was Fun, <laughs> yeah, was, starring Mary Kate and Ashley yeah. Olsen. Well, yeah, uh, I, I was going to say, yeah. Uh, Peg Phillips, the actress who plays Ruth Ann, doesn't have a lot of acting credits. And uh, just, yeah, from his description, uh, How the West Was Fun. I think someone else. Uh, another guest on the podcast was like, I I know Peg, I know that, I know Ruth Ann, I know her from somewhere. And I had to like look it up. I was like, I'm not really sure like where they could have seen her because like she's not in a lot of stuff. But uh, but yeah, from Colin's description of like a, a tape that he might have watched when he was a kid uh, or something on TV. Yeah, this is the, the, the like, I guess like Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen Western fun movie, How the West Was Fun. The title, sorry. I just <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Yeah, I think the premise is them going to a dude ranch? A guest... Uh, okay, so it's... Yeah, dude ranch is also called a guest ranch. Okay, got it. Um, And they just get into hijinks, from what I can tell. I'm trying to Love see it. if they... <laughs> was this like a home release? It looks like it is. Uh, let's see, professional poster video release. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was a theatrical release. Who knows? Let's see. Yeah, Warner Home Video. So it was not a it was not a theatrical release. Ah, okay. Oh, original network ABC. So I think it might have been a yeah. You were right, right? It was like a TV TV movie. Exactly. Um, okay. What else does Colin say? He I think he found most of the jokes in the uh, uh, like the all pink room, the fact that Holling can't poop, and uh, the Athabath. Sorry, I can't even say it. The Athabascan footstool. That is very fun to say, Athabascan footstool. Colin also mentions that, you know, by the end of it, he wasn't entirely sure the tone. It feels like a comedy, but also has some dramatic moments. Uh, I would say, like, maybe the, maybe just hearing those uh, thoughts at the end, that maybe he didn't get a good introduction to the show. I mean, to say, like, uh, it was kind of, like, hard to tell what it was like, what if he would want to watch it, you know, it was, it was kind of hard to grasp on for him just watching it out of context here. Yeah. He was really honest about it saying that, you know, definitely would not be at the top of his queue <laughs> yeah, to watch this, but you know, respect for being honest. <laughs> yeah. But also he, he gave respect to the show too. He's like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fine show. He, he enjoyed it. Uh, he would like to see more, but not the top of his list. Was, uh, was Colin, was he one of the people you were trying to get to watch the show in high school? Probably so. I mean, I feel like I probably tried to show this this TV show to anyone and everyone, like all of my friends. Uh, like I, I do also remember, like Charles, I made you watch the pilot a long, long time ago, but of course you had like completely blacked it out. <laughs> 
But uh, <laughs> I still remember the moose. The moose I, I remember yeah. the moose. I remember we were at uh, frequent guest star Jay. We were at his place when we were watching it, and that, that that's all I remember. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think uh, he was. Whenever we were texting, Colin said, "I'm not sure." He wasn't sure if he watched an episode with me. But he did have a vague memory of that, uh, <laughs> us watching, like some people watching it in a back room at at that party at <laughs> house. All right. Well, that does it for Colin. Uh, great hearing your voice, Colin. And thanks again for watching uh, the show, providing us with your thoughts, taking your time there. We're doing great. We hope you're doing well. And Charles, our next episode is the 21st episode Oh, sorry. Well, I was looking in season three. I was like having some deja vu. 21st episode in season four. Uh, by the way, the 21st episode of season three was It Happened in Juno. Uh, we've already covered that episode. Uh, but in season four, it's titled The Big Feast. I will say that a lot of the recipes in the Northern Exposure Cookbook, there's like a whole chapter uh, that is like feature featuring the dishes in this episode, The Big Feast. So Charles, uh, I can already tell you there's going to be some food, but what do you guess will happen in the next episode, The Big Feast? Uh, uh, I'm going to guess they're having a feast based on uh, some sort of festival that is related to the Native American population that's living in Sicily, Alaska. I, I want to say it's more geared toward that direction. And, you know, I'm really curious what they're going to talk about because they no longer have Mike. I wonder if they're going to go through this trend of continuing plot lines and addressing that because they followed the plot line of uh they followed the plot line of Shelley and Holly being married. So, yeah, I'm interested to see the ramifications of today's episode. Yeah, you're right. Shelley and Holly got married the very the the last episode, uh, just the one prior to this. So, and they commented on it in this episode. So, yeah, be interested to see if they comment on Mike in the next episode. And uh, pretty good guess, but we'll talk about that episode next week. Uh, Charles, thanks for podding. All right, I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Lazy Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Colin for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoveraxposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter, and if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northern overexposure podcast. And of course, thank you for listening.